He did this the hard way. Grew up playing guitar in a band, skipped college, became an accountant by testing into the profession, and after he got into the corporate world, made a lateral move into marketing. He's Andy Mooney, the CEO of Fender Musical Instruments Corporation. Mooney and Fender are trying to change the way we look at musical instruments, including guitars, and the process of buying one and learning to play. It all made sense after he told me his role in the Disney princess concept becoming a global marketing phenomenon. Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I'm John Fort from CNBC. First this week on the one-on-one, Andy Mooney. And then I huddle with some Hollywood experts to figure out what really makes a show or movie valuable in the era of streaming. That's on a lot of people's minds with Oscar nominations out this week. Here's Andy Mooney. All right, Andy Mooney, CEO of Fender. Thanks for being with me. My pleasure. Um, You play guitar. I do. And have for a while. 50 years. How'd you first pick it up? I learned classical guitar in grade school, and then I graduated to electric guitar in high school. Before Fender, you were with Disney, Nike, among others. Mm -hmm. What inspired your move into business? Well, I originally... um, started my career in finance, uh, skipped college, um, but managed to convince the companies I worked for to fund uh, my taking the exams anyway. <laughs> and at the ripe old age of 25, when I was qualified, I uh, wanted to become a CFO, and the only crazy company that would give me that title was a company called Nike in the UK. So I was CFO of the Nike's UK operations. CFO of Nike's UK operations, never went to college. Mm-hmm but I've been playing guitar for 50 years. This is quite a story. Um, before I get deeper into that though, I want to talk about Fender because some people might have seen the headlines about Gibson yeah. and assumed that there's some broad problem in the guitar and musical instrument business. Yeah. Not the case. Couldn't be further from the truth. The fretted instrument segment has been growing steadily since uh, 2014. Fretted instruments, so you're including basses, guitars, ukuleles, what? Yeah, basically those three, acoustic, electric, and uh, ukuleles. And and 2017 was a record year for the industry, post high of pre-recession. 18 will be another record year. And uh, there are some really significant external factors driving growth. Um, demand for recorded music is growing. 178 million people paid for a streaming music service last year. Yeah. Uh, 83 million people attended a Live, Nation, Live Nation concert. Um, but we are doing what we can to fuel industry growth through product innovation, elevated marketing, and uh, our most recent product, which is a digital learning a product called Fender Play. But how does that work? I mean, because to the music listener looking at the music industry, it's like that whole business model around recorded music sort of fell apart after the CD. Streaming, I mean, yes, it's getting its legs under it now, but for a long time, it was clear that it, we weren't gonna recapture the sort of heyday mm-hmm. around the CD. Like you said, though, live music is still an important business. It, it seems like people can't afford musical instruments anymore, but, but maybe, Maybe uh, it's just the people at the very top who don't have as much money as they used to. Well, we sell a complete range of price points. You can mm. buy an electric guitar for $100, or you can buy it for $100,000. Um, <laughs> and what we found is actually currently it's the higher price points that are growing more robustly even than the lower price points. Um, because people who want to commit to the instrument really want to buy in at a quality level. 
Uh, and I somewhat describe it, subscribe it to, you, you know, once you've paid whatever you're going to pay for an iPhone, $1,000 for a guitar seems like a pretty, <laughs> pretty inex, inexpensive purchase for something you're going to really develop a life skill on. Where does technology come in? I remember when Apple first came out with GarageBand, um, th there have been various attempts to do tuners mm -hmm. to help with instruments. Gibson's been accused mm -hmm. of doing it clumsily. I, I frankly like some of the apps, like Guitar Tuna mm -hmm. on, on the iPhone does a, does a great job as far as I'm concerned. How is that changing the way the, the customer approaches the instrument? Well, I think you have to separate technology that's been applied to the instrument from technology to the process of learning and listening to and uh, recording music. Okay. The former has been a disaster. <laughs> the, the, the movement generally, I take effects pedals as another case in point. I mean, the market of effects pedals is booming, but it's, it's very basic, stomp box, does one thing, does one thing very, very well not multi-digital effects, that those are, are not blossoming the way that... that Why is that? Uh, I, I just think that a, a lot of those digital products, the UI was terrible. Um, you needed a university degree to figure out how to uh, do very simple things on these, these pedals. And I think the... Uh, I had this very, very interesting uh, teaching session with Tom Morello who uh, explained to me that he used to think that creativity came from his effects pedal board or his amp, but what he really learned was creativity comes from here. Mm. So he now holds steady all of the, uh, all of the um, settings on his amp. He has only four effects pedals on his board and it's unleashed his creativity because now all he's got to think about is uh, what is the music that's going to come from my head. Where's the disconnect? It, it, it seems like if you're a producer, technology has taken you forward by leaps and bounds. Mm -hmm. you, you've got to have the latest software, you've got to have the most powerful computer, you've got to understand how to use it. But if you're a musician mm -hmm. who's at that basic creative level, the technology can very quickly get in the way. Uh, uh, absolutely. Well, well, where we're applying technology, uh, we launched our digital division, uh, our first really digital product about 18 months ago, Fender Play. When we uh, conducted what was probably the first comprehensive study of the market, we found that 45% of the guitars we sold uh, every year were sold to first-time players. But that 45 to first-time players? Much higher percentage than we imagined. What did you think it was? I would have said 15, 20% of the most. Mm. Uh, we also found that 50% of new guitar buyers were women, which mm. is also a big surprise. Most what did people you think that was? 70 or 80 percent male huh. and the reason that was is they were pre predominantly buying online and not through a traditional uh, brick and mortar solution. women were buying online yeah is that because of the retail experience exactly kind of like that car dealership or mechanic experience that has become sort of legend in our culture yeah i think the the new the first time player experience male or female in a brick and mortar store tends to be intimidating it's the type of club you have to be in the club to, to join the club mm -hmm. Um, so they simply avoided it and, uh, and bought online and looked to referrals from uh, influencers or from friends. The, the big um, insight that came out of that research is that 90% of those first-time players, male or female, abandoned the instrument in the first year, if not the first 90 days. Mm. But they spent four times as much on lessons uh, as they did on gear and that they were uh, veering towards online lessons, digital lessons, as opposed to face-to-face. -to -face. So it's just a horrible customer experience end-to-end -end for that first 90 days then. They don't want to go in the store. Uh, once they get the instrument, 
they're, they're taking lessons and end up abandoning it. Big right. opportunity, Correct. right? Yes, yeah, so the 10% of the salmon that get through the dam, as it were, <laughs> end up committing to the instrument for life, spending, have a lifetime value for $10,000 on five to seven guitars, buy multiple amps, multiple equipment. And so we looked at the, less, the learning segment as an independently viable business opportunity, mm. but we also felt if we could reduce the abandonment rate by just 10%, we had a chance to double the size of the hardware business. So what year is this when you're looking at this data and coming to these conclusions? Uh, three and a half years ago now. Mm. Um, so that pointed us in the direction of what to do in Fender Digital. Uh, we launched Fender Play, which is our learning uh, product, uh, 18 months ago. Uh, as of this month, we're fast approaching 100,000 uh, users of Fender Play. How does it work? Uh, we spent two years developing video content. Um, the emphasis on, is getting you to be comp competent in playing your first song. <laughs> uh, so you come into the app, you declare whether you play acoustic or electric, you de declare your preferred genre. We give you a, a, a list of song options. And then we then teach you the skills uh, based on which song you want to learn, rather than doing it the other way around. Interesting. You know, Rather than teaching you a bunch of chords. Or, you know, how to play diminished, d d <laughs> diminished scales, which I still haven't learned how to play after 50 years. Um, you only really need to learn three chords to play most of the music that's ever been written. One, four, five, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> whatever, whatever key you happen to be in. Correct. Um, so you said you're at around 200,000? 100,000. 100,000? Yeah. And what's the, what's the business model there? It's a, a subscription model. Um, monthly and annual. We're really encouraging the annual because what we found is that uh, the longer that someone sticks with learning, the more likely they are to become a committed player. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the equivalent monthly cost of the annual subscription is only seven and a half dollars a month. Um, but we also offered um, a 10% discount on any gear that you buy during that period, either mm -hmm. at uh, participating Fender dealers or Fender.com. So if you buy $900 worth of gear, which is very easy to do in your first year, your lessons are essentially for free. Have you tracked the demographics? Do you know if the Fender Play user base looks like that underserved base that you found when you looked at the numbers? What we did do is we created an invitation Facebook community. And we were pleasantly surprised that about 10% of the total audience joined that community. So 10,000 people in it's a very significant community. Our assumption, it's always interesting to see what happens based on what you really thought. Our assumptions was it would all be young people um, buying opening price point guitars, opening price point amps. And I would say about half of the community is that. The other half, surprisingly to us, are uh, people who are kids have, kids have gone to college, uh, empty nesters, mm -hmm. people who have time and a disposable income to commit to learning a new life skill or relearning a new relearning a life skill. They're buying high price point guitars, high price point amps. But what's great about the community is they're all encouraging each other. They're helping each other get over barriers. They're, they're, some of them are joining e each other in bands. <laughs> it's really it's really been quite uplifting to see that community develop. All right, now take me back to your youth. You said you've been playing guitar. For 50 years, you must have started pretty young. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, yes. Uh, pretty young. Um, first band? Uh, my first band had the completely politically incorrect name these days, The Bitch. <laughs> uh, Simple, to the point. Yeah. Uh, where did you play? Uh, we played the uh, local clubs and uh, auditoriums in Scotland, where I grew up. Where in Scotland? 
uh, just outside of Edinburgh. So what year was that? What was it like? So it would have been 19, late 69, 70 type time. Yeah. yeah. So what are you playing? What's that like? I mean... Well, the, the prevailing genre, of course, was pop. Basically, rollers were like um, top of the charts. Um, but we were a pop band that tried to heavy everything up, which is probably one of the biggest reasons why we never came anywhere close to being successful. <laughs> <laughs> we never had a genre, but we had a lot of fun in the process. And you, I guess, held on to that throughout your career. You talked about how you ended up at Nike mm -hmm. after uh, taking Tesla. You didn't go to college. What role did music and, and playing music, um, what role did that play as you focused on other things? Well, I always think of myself as being a kind of balance of left brain, right brain, is mm -hmm. that the, you know, the finance discipline and my education in Scotland, I can never remember which is the left brain or the right brain. That was the analytic, that's really developed the analytical side, but the, the music side unleashed the creativity. Right, um, the right brain. The right brain. The music. Thank you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I only, um, I escaped from finance two years later in the marketing and never really, never really went back. So marketing's a bit more in the right brain side of uh, things. Absolutely, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, what did you do in marketing? Well, uh, eventually I was head of marketing in the UK, um, moved to the US in 84. Can but I how did you score head of marketing in the UK <laughs> after, right? After you... doing head of finance, <laughs> kind of testing in non-traditional route, it seems like a lot of people might have gotten boxed into that role because it's like, okay, well, the, here's what this guy can do. Well, what I found was the most important job I had uh, as CFO of Nike UK was buying shoes from the parent company six months in advance. I had you know, no intelligence <laughs> to do that, so I spent a lot of time on the road with uh, the reps, a lot of time at marathon events talking to, to runners. And then I did something that was a little off the beaten path as I hung out with the kids, in, Jamaican kids in Brixton, because mm. they were the kids who were sending the trains. Were you doing that in part because of your background? Uh, I, I was doing that to make more, um, more informed decisions. Of what I mean, it's to not buy. a typical accountant thing to do. Right, but you're a musician, right. also, right. right? You didn't go the traditional accountant path into things. Yep. How much did you know your your experience with the people, uh, the real consumers, all that time play into the way you did your market research? Well, I, I'm sure it did. I mean, I think one of the things that music really uh, helped me with is being connected to popular culture. Um, you know, so again, even, even as I kind of went through the ranks at, uh, at Nike, when people who were in the tennis category would go to tennis events, or people in the basketball category would go to basketball events, I would never know more about basketball or tennis than they would. So I would go to ACDC concerts, <laughs> because that gave me a much broader perspective on, um, you know, what a whole stratification of consumers were doing. Um, so I always tended to try to find events or, or methods to connect with popular culture. So I guess I've never really thought of it in those terms, but I think music definitely had a, had a play in that. And I imagine Disney, where you ended up after Nike, mm -hmm. also a place where lots of different disciplines are coming together. There's the marketing, music plays quite a big role mm -hmm. in everything that Disney does. What did you find got pulled from your skills in the job you did there uh, with consumer products? Well, I've always considered myself being um, very, very curious. 
Um, and the Disney assignment was a turnaround assignment. That, that particular division I was brought in to do was, um, that had gone through a significant decline. Why? Uh, I think it was the business model at the time was not, um, uh, was not working and the company as a whole was not really developing franchises to, for the consumer products division to take advantage of. So what year is that? Uh, 2000. Okay, so that's before uh, Pixar has really grown out, that's certainly before Lucasfilm and Marvel. Before all of those acquisitions, me, Pixar hadn't even been acquired at that time. So. Right, but it was a partner, Public, but, yeah. but it, it wasn't a, a big part of Disney and you didn't have full reign to really incorporate it yeah, into things. Uh, uh, absolutely, so I, I mean I was looking for solutions to help grow the business, have the business rebound and um, I, as part of my in, induction in the company, I went to a, a Disney on Ice event in the middle of the desert, as it turned out to be in Phoenix. And <laughs> I, again, because I was at a higher ranks at Disney, you go there by the corporate jet, you're supposed to go through the back door VIP entrance. I didn't want to do that because I wouldn't get a chance to see who was there. Right. So I went in the front door with the rest of the people and I'm standing in line with mothers and daughters dressed head to toe in princess outfits. And I asked, well, where did you buy these? And the answer was, we, we can't buy these. Disney doesn't make them. We had to ah. actually sew these up ourselves. And I said, well, if we made them available, would you buy them? And they said, yeah. So I literally rushed home <laughs> to my team and said, I th think this Disney princess thing is viable. And they said, <laughs> you think? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, but the, res the, yeah. res the response was, you'll get fired. Why? because no two princesses could be seen on the same plane together. You can't mix characters from different movies. Because the belief was it would destroy the mythology of the individual stories. And this became a raging debate inside the company, went all the way up to board level, when Michael Eisner was uh, CEO and Bob Iger CEO at the time. But Roy Disney, who really hated this idea, ran the studio and was on the board. He was. Uh, absolutely opposed to it, but fortunately, you know, Michael Eisner and Bob both supported me. I think the franchise is about six billion now, and I have a 12-year-old daughter. It seems like every girl in the world goes through a brief moment in the time where they want to go through fantasy roleplay and dress up like a princess. Yeah, it's hard to believe that it's only been less than 19 years yeah. since that became something that Disney took advantage of. And in a way, that's a parallel back to what you were saying with the guitar business in looking at a segment of the market that's just underserved and goes against your assumptions about what the industry would have its eye on. Yeah, I like to say every d d decent business idea I've ever had got me on the brink of getting fired. It's <laughs> kind of the way it's, it's been. Uh, finally, Where's this segment going technology-wise? When you look at the instrument piece mm -hmm. and where technology is best used, best leveraged, you've learned some things uh, from play and how, how that's growing, what's next? Well, the product that we're working on right now, uh, we're in the final stages of negotiating with the record labels and publishers, is we, we bought a small company in Ireland that has an algorithm that can produce the chords for any song it hears uh, in oh. five seconds or less. Wow. Uh, um, so, uh, and what's been very interesting in the beta testing we've done on that is uh, it, it's giving us insight into what people want to learn. 
Yeah. And, you know, oftentimes they so want So it's like a Shazam, but for sheet music. It's ex well, exactly right. Um, except it's, it's not sheet music per se, it's just even simpler tab, tab, uh, tab rendering of the chords. Right. But as I say, what's been interesting is that um, often some of the songs that kids want to learn don't even have guitar in the music. I mean, mm -hmm. it could be songs from Chance the Rapper, or, but they have a chord structure. Yeah. which can be um, you know, fed back to them in five seconds or less. So, so it also gives us um, early warning signs about what we should then record and Fender play so oh, that we, okay. we, we, have, we have the right songs in the library at the right so time. So of course you can see what people are feeding in. And my guess is, I mean, if, if you have gotten, you know, chord sheets, tabulature, there's like the real version of a song which a lot of people starting out can't play. Right. And then there's like a simplified version which is like, okay, if you, if you play this, most people will think you're playing the real version of the song, right. only you'll be the wiser, they'll know what it is, etc. Well, that's the other big thing that came out of the research is there's only a very small percentage of people who actually want to get up on stage and play. And then there's an even smaller percentage of them who think that they're actually going to make a living out of which is which is wise. <laughs> the vast majority of people now play music because they want to play it solo, socially, they want it for therapeutic reasons, they want to develop a new life skill, so they're perfectly happy if they can get access to three or four chords for the song that they love, that they can play in a bedroom, play in a college dorm, um, play friends on the beach, whatever it might be. And we're happy to give them that opportunity. That's awesome. I started playing myself because I wanted to write my own music and just learn the chords that I needed to figure out what was in my head. Um, got a great story. I look forward to continuing to follow it with Fender. Andy, thanks. Thank you very much. And now, let's talk streaming. Whether it's Bird Box or The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, what's a hit really worth? The game has changed. I mean, it used to be a movie was valuable if it had a big showing at the box office, though there was the occasional film that did, did big rental business but didn't do much in theaters. For more on that, see the entire careers of the Olsen twins after Full House. And then for TV, much of the same. A show is big if it gets people to watch commercials or buy cable. Well. The game has changed. Welcome to Fort Knox. I'm John Fort from CNBC. Streaming is shaping, shaking things up. Netflix has a Best Picture nominee in Roma. Netflix and Amazon had big showings at the Golden Globes. As the streaming wars keep getting hotter, it's worth asking the question, what really makes a show or a movie valuable? What's more valuable, a movie like Bird Box or a show like you? Joining me today to discuss, Andrew Yateman is a former Netflix executive, current head of the Americas for Moonbug Entertainment. Later, we're going to have CNBC's Julia Borston, Forbes' Scott Mendelson is going to join me. Last but not least, Yuri Singer, movie producer and CEO of Tailflick. But first, Andrew, I want to talk to you about what you do and the insight that gives you into what's really valuable for these streaming services. I mean, Moonbug is, is looking at gathering a bunch of safe and fun content for kids. Why is that necessary in the, in the streaming era? So, so thanks, John. First of all, it's great to be here. So that's right. So Moonbug is a new company. We are acquiring uh, kids' content that has big, passionate audiences on digital platforms today, such as YouTube, all over the world, and then we're vesting in them to grow them and to take them to, to more and more audiences, to improve the content, take them all over the world. And the reason why we're doing this is because, frankly, because kids' viewing habits have changed completely. I mean, today, YouTube is the number one brand among kids. Netflix is not far behind. Three quarters uh, of kids watch YouTube on a daily, on a regular basis. 
And, um, and so it's really big audiences, and it's audiences that are very passionate about it. And so that's why we're, that's why we're focused on this space, because it's where the audiences are, and it's the next generation, and they're just growing up with this stuff that... Uh, the so, streaming services is what they're living with. So, Andrew, what's the most valuable type of kids' content to a service like a Netflix or uh, an Amazon Prime Video, and why? What is it about it? Is it uh, the way people keep coming back to watch, drawing in a new audience? How does it pencil out? Yeah, so kids' content does, does a lot of things for these services. Uh, what, exactly. Kids like to re-watch their favorite content. They like to come back and watch it. And so uh, that's exactly one of the things that makes it so valuable. It provides kind of stickiness for these services. So as a parent, you might want, you might be watching a show and then it ends, and then you might not watch another show for a few weeks, but your kids are probably watching on a regular basis. And that's the kind of content that, we, that we're creating and distributing and bringing to so audiences. So that keeps the parent from dropping the service? I mean, is that what it comes down to? Lower yeah, churn? I mean, it, a higher loyalty? If, if my kid stays quiet on the plane watching that thing, I am sure going to keep paying that service every month. If my kid is getting value from it, the service, then I'm getting value from the service. And so therefore, yeah, exactly. It helps stickiness. That's right. So um, with Moonbug itself, is that just a new version of the sort of content specialist that's all, always existed in Hollywood? Or, you know, or is, it, is it something entirely new? So it, it, we're basically seeing it's a new source of IP, right? We're finding this grassroots content that is being produced all over the world and then watched all over the world, and that's only possible because of streaming services like YouTube and the democratization of producing content, and, and we're bringing them to the rest of the world. So I'll give you an example. The first, the first property that we acquired is a, is a nursery rhyme channel for toddlers called Little Baby Bum. And if you don't have kids under the age of five, you've probably never heard of it. But if, you're on, if you do have kids under the age of five, most likely you have, because nearly half of kids under five in the U.S. watch Little Baby Bum on a regular basis. Hmm. And in countries like the U.K., it's actually over that. It's two-thirds of now, kids. So. Little Baby Bum, I take it that's the like, British bum, like small baby butt, as opposed to that, little... That, Baby. That is exactly right, right. It, and okay, it actually right, right. does come from the UK originally, <laughs> right, but it's okay, being okay. watched all over the world. There's even audiences in, you know, we recently found out North Korea who are watching it. So um, North so Korea, it, it all over the world, including there. Huh? Broadband in North Korea. That's um, that's news in and of itself. So, <laughs> so explain to me. You were at Netflix. Explain to me um, Bird Box. Saw it over the weekend. Um, Sandra Bullock, one of the most amazing things to me about Bird Box is Sandra Bullock is 10 years older uh, than, than Sarah Paulson, but is playing her younger sister and manages to pull it off. But what is it about this movie that makes it valuable for Netflix? What is it about this movie that makes it valuable for Sandra Bullock? Could this movie have actually been released in theaters or is it a unique product of the digital streaming era we're in? Um, so obviously I had nothing to do with, with the movie itself, yeah, and I won't yeah, comment you, on the creative, but absolutely, that, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. absolutely, you know, Netflix is putting out movies that absolutely could be, could be seen in theaters and could have done well in theaters. And you asked a question earlier about what kind of defines a hit today when you can't just compare ratings on different channels or box office from different movies. One way that I think of a hit in the world of streaming with personalization is 
if everybody in your circle, in your social circle, so your social media, your friends and family, word of mouth is talking about something, then you know it's a hit and you don't have to have the numbers. And that certainly was the case for Bird Box over, over the holidays and that certainly drummed up a whole lot of word of mouth for Netflix. And if everyone's talking about it and you don't have Netflix, uh, you probably might want to sign up to Netflix to watch Bird Box to see what everyone's talking about. So is that, is that how Netflix is going to pencil this one out and how much it was worth? Because, I mean, I, I take it Sandra Bullock, not cheap. I mean, she's a star. She executive produced this. She stars in it. She, uh, I guess, gets to write it in a way that used to be reserved for male actors, by the way. I love that about this. It used to be if you were a male actor over 50, you got to have the younger love interest and, you know, play the... The, the dad of, of young kids, even though it was biologically questionable. Hey, but now she's doing it. Um, what, what's the value of it to talent like Sandra Bullock that took a chance, I guess, in going with Netflix? And then what's the value to Netflix in having this kind of a buzzy hit that I, I guess maybe they could have predicted? I mean, I think from a talent perspective, you, you've gotten, as you said, you've gotten to have kind of more creative input into in the the content you're, you're starring in, and then you have a huge audience all over the world watching it, so that's really valuable. And, you know, for Netflix, there's lots of different metrics that they look at, obviously the size of the audience, but yeah, word of mouth and people talking about it is absolutely something that drives value for these services as they try to keep their existing subscribers and try to get new subscribers. Now, what's your take on this show, You? Used to be on Lifetime, didn't see many people were watching it, then Netflix picks it up, and at least I'm told it's a big buzzy hit now. I don't know how that's measured um, since Netflix doesn't put out numbers, I guess, by social media and the followers that people are getting. Is that because Lifetime has kind of grown this reputation as belonging to a certain demographic of people who stay at home and watch melodramas? And so, you know, it couldn't break out there. But on Netflix, it's hip and cool. And so the audience is willing to see it. I mean, how does that happen? Well, it, you're right that, that a lot of kind of traditional or linear networks tend to appeal to specific demographics, and Netflix has been able to appeal to broad, wide demographics, pretty much anybody. And so uh, even though a show or a movie might not be a great fit for a specific network, potentially, um, you know, Netflix might be able to find a whole different audience. And they also don't have to necessarily make decisions based on, you know, Live Plus 7, Live Plus 3 ratings. They can look at the audience over a larger period of time, so it gives them a little more, uh, you know, a, a little more ability to give a show or a movie a little bit of, of more rope in order to find the audience. Finally, awards. Uh, we just got the Academy Award nominees out, and Roma is big on the nominee list. That caught my eye because this is one of the films that Netflix pulled from Cannes uh, in in 2018 over this controversy on how they were presented. That has to be kind of industry-shaking in the sense that Cannes doesn't want to lose a, a film like this in the future. If it's going to even rack up this many nominations, does it change the very culture of film around the world? So what, one of the last areas in the movie and TV world that the streaming services had not really um, had much of an impact yet is 
is the award movies, Academy Award movies. So I do think this is a big milestone year with Netflix. You know, first of all, yesterday joining the Motion Picture Association of America alongside the major studios, and then also really making a splash in terms of so many Oscar nominations for Romas. You kind of don't get more mainstream and traditional entertainment than the Academy Awards. So it, it is a milestone, a milestone week, I guess. And this is going to be a milestone year for the streaming in general. I think it's going to be the biggest year for the streaming industry um, that there has been yet, because while Netflix is joining the party for the Academy Awards, you also have the, you know, Disney, Warner Media, part of AT&T, mm -hmm. Apple, all launching their streaming services later this year. And then you also have Quibi, the, the service from Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman launching later this year as well. So the, the industry is, is changing very rapidly, and we're far from kind of mature and settled as how this is all going to play out. Yeah, uh, we'll see how many of those can actually survive and be viable businesses. You've given insight into what makes the content valuable. Andrew Yateman uh, from Moonbug Entertainment. Thanks for being Thanks, with John. us. Thanks, John. Great and to be here. This is Fort Knox. We are talking about what makes this content really valuable in a streaming era. I mean, how valuable is an Oscar nomination versus just really strong social media buzz. Joining us now to take us deeper on the producer's perspective, Yuri Singer, CEO of Tailflick, founder and CEO of Passage Pictures. His latest film, Marjorie Prime, starred John Hamm and Tim Robbins. He's also working with Ethan Hawke on uh, Nikola Tesla uh, biopic. Um, thanks for being with us, Yuri. I I'm wondering your, your reaction you to this latest slate of nominees and winners in award season, and, and what impact these streaming players continue to have over the creative process and what, what's deemed really valuable in Hollywood? So I think uh, Roma yesterday really opened, um, opened the door, if you would think five years ago, if uh, somebody would say that uh, uh, the streaming services are going to be nominated for 10 Oscars, the most nominated movie <laughs> of, of the year, nobody would believe it. So I think uh, we're in a new reality. Uh, as a producer, it gives us another um, window of opportunity of getting directors to understand. Uh, for me personally, when I offered the, the director of Marjorie Prime, as you mentioned, to do a movie with Netflix uh, a short time ago, uh, he thought, no, streaming is not good. Today, people and great directors are open because they get bigger budgets and it's possible to make uh, more quality uh, productions. Well, take me a little deeper into this Roma story, because Alfonso Coron uh, produced, co-edited it, uh, directed it, a known quantity in Hollywood for sure. And, and so it, it's not like this is something that Netflix found at the bottom of some you know, bargain bin heap. What's the significance of the decision he made to go with them, sort of the, the, the can controversy from 2018 uh, and how Netflix pulled out of that and how all of that's likely to play in the future? I mean, is, are these nominations bigger from an audience perspective or from a Hollywood talent perspective saying, hey, here's a distribution method that you can really count on as, as a number one top tier distributor? I think you're absolutely on the nose, the latter. I think uh, definitely talent uh, that was reluctant to put their name into uh, TV shows and, and movies in the streaming uh, services today got the answer. I mean, Roma is, is allowing the director to do whatever he wants uh, with the budget he wants and go wild. And that risk taking uh, studios 
uh, are um, not that keen on doing. Uh, when I had a, um, I, I found books uh, that I tried to turn into uh, into um, movies. Uh, I, I optioned a book called The Zero um, by Jess Walter, and I had Ethan Hawke attached and, and a great director, Jose Pagilia. I went to the streaming services because they see the potential. They can do a controversial movie uh, without a bigger risk that the studios have, um, the regular studios have. So I think today talent and directors uh, are much more respectful of the possibilities that the streaming allow them. Uh, they go, they pitch themselves. Yeah. If you see Amazon Studios and Netflix, uh, the line of, of uh, stars that are coming to pitch their projects and uh, uh, is, is unheard of. So you're, like, yeah, uh, give, me your take, give me your take on Bird Box. I was just talking about this with Andrew. Just watched it over the weekend. Yeah, I know it took a while, uh, but, but a few things struck me about it. Would that have played with a major studio in the pre-streaming uh, era? A 54-year-old actress, Sandra Bullock, hasn't had a huge hit in a while that I can recall, at least on uh, the silver screen, says, I'm going to play the mom of a toddler and have a younger love interest and be in this kind of action flick situation, and there's no superheroes, and you know none of that. Would that have gotten picked up? Or is this something that could only happen in the era of over-the-top and streaming? So I, I think that it would have actually, uh, being a studio movie and a success, uh, there is a, a The Quiet Place a movie with my partner, John Krasinski, yeah. is doing a movie with me with Matt Damon uh, at Universal, has done. And I think that opened the door to that kind of, of, uh, of success. I think that without uh, John's uh, Krasinski success with Quiet Place, uh, Sandra Bullock would not have been, would not have gotten that uh, big of an audience uh, and eyeballs. So I don't think necessarily uh, it's a success for streaming. I think it's a success based on the previous success, which is Hollywood uh, known for. Um, I think that uh, the same as what Netflix and the streaming services are now looking, uh, they're looking for original content. and. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a short plug-in, but I, I opened a company <laughs> called Tailflix, uh, Tailflix with uh, ex-Netflix and Apple employee, um, a brilliant uh, partner um, of mine, George Berry, and we made a platform in order to allow authors from around the world to be able to present their content. So we're looking right. for, uh, for stories, good stories, because all those streamings, Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and now Disney, they're looking for great content. The streaming tell, success... Though? How do you tell mm -hmm. what makes a good story, a, a good TV show, or a good movie? Like, is there an algorithm that they're running through? I mean, the, the secret sauce in Netflix is supposed to be the data they've got, who their customers are, what they like to watch. Are, are they really adhering to that data, or are they using their gut in, in the old school sense? What's really happening? So the streaming, especially Netflix, are definitely data-driven. I mean, they look what, what uh, even uh, according to what you're searching. And if you have, if you're searching for something and a family member is searching in the same house, they know to have the cover of the, of the, the, the movie different for you based on your searches. So they definitely know what you're searching and uh, they, they choose by the data. However, the whole industry is more of, if the book is a bestseller, it doesn't have to be 
a good story. If the book is a bestseller <laughs> or has a large social uh, following, that will interest them. And again, I'll, I'll go back to The King of Oil. That's a book that I optioned uh, and I brought it to the major studios and the streaming and they said, is it a bestseller? And I said, no, but the story is great. And after Matt Damon was interested, everybody was interested. But it's very hard for me as a producer to find that content. And that's where we, uh, we came up with the solution of finding great stories, not necessarily bestsellers, huh. but great stories that, that uh, are around the world. Are you specifically not looking for bestsellers? Because I imagine, I mean, you guys are, are, are kind of money ball, right? I mean, you, you're looking for uh, the diamond in the rough or, or maybe not the diamond for, for the ruby or the sapphire, maybe the, the less popular gem that you can polish up and, and maybe get some margin on. Is that how that works? We're looking for the needle in the haystack, uh, but uh, uh, we're looking for a lot of needles. But I, but I, I, uh, we, the problem is that the bestsellers, the top 200 books, uh, are going direct to the studios, so they have access. But right. all the other 99% in the world do not have access. And we're looking for what makes a good story and what it can become, uh, what, what the studios and the streaming services are interested in, and it's not necessarily the same. So we have the insight of what they're looking, and we have the content uh, piling in, and we source it and curate it with an algorithm first. But then if the story is good, we have our human uh, super readers that hmm. decide if that is good for human uh, adaptation. Human super readers. What's, yes. a, what's a human super reader? A human super reader is uh, the third tier of readers of our platform that uh, when the book is actually chosen and is good, the story behind it is good, it has a niche, it has an arc, and uh, the super reader is a script writer that is uh, worked in the industry, knows what the studios need, knows what can be good on screen or not, hmm. and can detect the needle from the haystack. I see. So um, people still playing a role despite the data out there. It, it seems like we're kind of establishing that uh, the award season is big for the Hollywood establishment, for, for the streaming services being able to prove to the talent that they are a top tier distributor. It's worth doing a deal with us. Really, the popularity and buzz, that's what gets the audience, you know, social media, et cetera, to, to kind of tune in and, and keep from churning off of these platforms. What's the role, if any, of the star? You mentioned Matt Damon. Uh, it seemed like the, the story that you were trying to get out there wasn't getting picked up at first because it wasn't a be uh, bestseller, but once Matt Damon was attached to it, people got interested. I, I thought the era of the megastar was over. They still have pull? It, they, it, they, not over on the country. They are much more in demand huh. uh, because there is so much more content being developed and produced and the stars that actually count, which greenlight the movie or that have a long, large following, they, are in the, they get so many good scripts now. They get so many good projects and they have to choose what they want. And if they choose one kind of movie, they, 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 have, they are really uh, the decision makers, like a streaming ah. service. Um, the streaming service can, some of them, and I can't mention names, but they will look <laughs> what are the names are. They sometimes won't even read the script and they will approve a movie just based on the names uh, attached. So, so we've heard that on the big screen, 
the years are past where people would go and pay to see a movie in the theater just based on Tom Hanks or Will Smith being attached to it. But maybe in streaming, where people are already paying monthly, they're gonna watch it and maybe not churn if they can see Sandra Bullock or if they can see Tom Hanks or if they can see you know, a name, an actor they know. Exactly, exactly. If you see, mm. if you see their success, uh, their success is based on there is really a, a direct correlation between the name of the star, the name of the actor, the name of the talent, the name of the director as well in, in the Roma case, uh, which is a unique, uh, a unique success. It's a mega, it's, it's, it's a masterpiece that doesn't matter where he would do it, um, uh, it, it would be a success. It's a brilliant yeah. uh, uh, piece of our time, so I take it aside. Now but if you look I on see. all the rest of the movies, it really depends on, on, on the mega star. And that's how we producers, when we have a great script, which is the first thing, and a great right. uh, filmmaker, we have to go and try to convince the actor why he should do our movie and not others, because he has so many uh, possibilities now. And now I see why the actors love this streaming era so much. Yuri Singer, CEO of Tailflick, uh, thanks for joining me and for all that great insight. Once again, this is Fort Knox. We are talking about what really makes content valuable. Movies, TV shows, all of that, just stories in the streaming era. Joining us now to continue the conversation, CNBC's own Julia Borston and Forbes senior contributor Scott Mendelson. Julia, you're always at the Oscars. Um, you know, full disclosure, your husband is a big-time producer, so you guys have it covered from both sides, the making and the reporting. What was your take on Roma's big haul of nominations. Well, I think one thing's for sure, Netflix is no longer an outsider. Netflix is now officially part of the establishment. I think it's no coincidence that Netflix's Roma, the first time Netflix has ever been nominated for Best Picture, was it got those accolades on Tuesday, which is the very same day that Netflix joined the MPAA. That's <laughs> Hollywood's lobbying association. So pretty meaningful that Netflix is no longer part of the Internet Association. It's now part of Hollywood's lobbying association, the MPAA. And you have Netflix with this black and white film that's, that's all in Spanish, having this film get nominated for Best Picture. It shows different content creators throughout Hollywood that Netflix can earn that top honor. It has a real shot if they come over, if, if Netflix can lure over more content creators by promising them a real shot at getting that kind of traditional Hollywood acclaim. And it shows they're just part of the establishment now. Well, pull out the crystal ball because Cuaron was well known before this, but what would have happened to this film had he not gone with Netflix, and he went with Netflix, you know, before Cannes, it had already been kind of committed to, picked up, et cetera. There was controversy about this at Cannes. What would have happened to this, and what happens at Cannes next year with Netflix, given the fact that I believe they passed up basically on having this because of their anti-Netflix rule? Well, there was a lot of question about how Netflix was going to release this. And in order to qualify this film, Roma, for the Oscars, it had to put it in theaters. So we don't know how much money this film actually generated at the box office because Netflix did this release in a very unusual way where they basically rented out theaters and then sold tickets from there and didn't have to actually disclose how many tickets were sold. But Netflix made it clear to the director, um, to the filmmaker, that they were going to distribute this in such a way that it would qualify for an Oscar. I think it's interesting that Netflix didn't tell us how many people have streamed Roma 
on the platform. <laughs> Bird Box is being a big hit. They've had a bunch of other TV shows drawing 40, 80 million households watching in their first four weeks. But it doesn't really matter to Netflix if Roma is a big hit on the platform. All they need is to use this as a big hit with the Hollywood establishment to show them that they will do what it takes to give a film like Roma the attention it needs, both in theaters and at the Oscars. Scott Mendelson, um, th this award season is proving to be quite an eye-opener. We're just talking about uh, Roma. It's not the only one if you look at Golden Globes as well. And then there's just the buzz around shows like you, uh, just, just for one. Uh, What's your take on what's the most surprising thing that's happening and what really makes content valuable in the streaming era? Well, in the streaming era, to be sim you know, simply put, content is valuable if it makes the subscriber want to sign up for your service. Sign um, up or stay? Well, si initially sign up. Okay. And with the hopes that either they'll want to stay or they don't feel like expending the time and energy to cancel. Um, <laughs> Obviously, it's a little bit easier online than it is trying to cancel a cable company. Um, with something like Roma or Bird Box or Net, uh, You, which was a, a used to be a lifetime television show, it's as much about you know creating a, me a media narrative that this content matters to the pop culture zeitgeist. That matters as much, if not more so, than whether people actually watch it or not. So for something like Bird Box, which is a good, solid, three-star post-apocalyptic thriller <laughs> in it, with a major movie star in the form of Sandra Bullock, uh -huh. who still is a major movie star. Um, yes, I'm sure millions and millions of people watched that film over the first week. But just as importantly, through the online memes and media coverage of those online memes, Netflix was once again able to dominate the media, even while audiences were flocking over the Christmas season to Aquaman and Mary Poppins and what have you. So it's, yes, so, it's an, do, do you think that uh, Netflix, and there's a bit of speculation here, but you, you understand the, the industry. So with that, you know, kind of couching it, uh, speculate for me. Was this something that Netflix probably paid a lot of money for? Uh, talking specifically about Bird Box. And so is the value of that influenced by how much they paid versus something like you, which didn't work on Lifetime? Maybe they got a deal on that and kind of turned that into a hit. What kind of situation is more valuable for a Netflix? Well, in terms of pure well, money, it's more valuable for them to spend less for equal or greater media coverage. Um, but for something like Roma or Bird Box, the goal with that, even aside from the Oscars, is using these limited theatrical releases as a carrot, as a way to entice bigger and bigger and more prestigious filmmakers, come make a Netflix movie. Yeah. It will be in theaters. You'll get to make the kind of movie that Hollywood doesn't necessarily distribute anymore. And it won't just be on streaming. Yes, the vast majority of people will see Bird Box on Netflix or Roma on Netflix or Martin Scorsese's yeah. The Irishman on Netflix, but you'll still get the prestige of a glorified theatrical release. Yeah, Julia, get in there. And 
Yeah, I just think the key thing here, John, is that Netflix is paying a lot of money for this content. They have to pay a lot of money to get an actress like Sandra Bullock to agree to do something like this. And they probably have to reassure her that they are going to be spending a lot of money on advertising and really promoting this. I mean, Netflix has huge power that they could put this bird box. They could autoplay the trailer every time I and the 150 million plus other Netflix subscribers around the world open up Netflix. So they are making a commitment not just in terms of the cost of the film itself, but also in terms of marketing, both to their own you know, existing audience, but also to audiences around the world. I think it's really interesting that Netflix has bought an outdoor advertising company. They own a billboard company, and this is <laughs> crucial because they want to make sure that their films are part of the conversation and have their, their billboards everywhere. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's not quickster, but it's definitely old school. Last thing I want to get your take on before we go, comedy, stand-up on Netflix, um, pretty big category. What's their play? Julia, is it getting a group of people that for whatever reason wasn't watching HBO's comedy specials? Are they going to watch it on Netflix? Are they, are they broadening this out? They seem to have kind of discovered a couple of comedians who hadn't made it big with specials otherwise. Well, I have to say, I watch a lot of comedy on Netflix. It's good counter-programming to watching the news sometimes. Did you watch so it on watch, HBO? I watch a lot of... I, I, you know, I watch some on, on HBO, but I feel like I've discovered more people mm. on Netflix. I think H, uh, Netflix has found they could spend a ton of money and they could lure over big name comedians and they could keep people coming back. This is the kind of thing that's pretty easy to watch in short clips. It might be a long hour long special. People can come watch a couple minutes at a time and they can keep on feeding you more content. So they're really able to take their huge wealth of, of cash and just invest in these big name comedians. And I think the name of the game right now for Netflix is investing to get the volume of content they need, especially when you look at the fact that Disney, as well as possibly NBC Universal, <laughs> as well as AT&T, could all pull back their content that they've been licensing as they prepare to launch their own services. So right now, Netflix has to spend big, not just to lock in subscribers and make them feel like they're getting value, but to make sure that they have enough content that when those licensing deals start to go away, yeah. they're not left uh, with thinner library. Right along those lines, the JEET, a viewer, comments, digital changes distribution of media more than any other aspect. Media moves at the speed of light. So does its flywheel effect. Scott, final word here. You're talking about comedy. Uh, Ali Wong comes to mind. She, she did that kind of hilarious uh, online parody of the UCLA gymnast kind of furthering this whole digital marketing thing uh, that she has going of her comedy career. That was somebody who we really didn't know about before the Netflix special, right? Yes, that was actually someone that I personally, quote-unquote, discovered via her Netflix specials. And now <laughs> I count myself as a fan. I think what Netflix is doing is twofold, because they can afford to. A, they're throwing ungodly amounts of money at people that any general moviegoer or entertainment consumer has heard of. You know, a Chris Rock, a... a you know, up until recently, Louis C.K., you know, and people like that. They, hey, look, look who we can get. And they're also doing what they can to push lesser-known names to the forefront so the other narrative is, look who we can discover. Yeah. Come to Netflix and see this person before they're cool. Yeah. And I think Netflix's overall goal, as it has to be, is to spend, possibly overspend at this point, with the hopes is that when there's, you know, a dozen different you know, streaming options and consumers aren't necessarily going to want to spend 100, 150 bucks a month on each individual streaming package, that Netflix becomes one of the ones that everybody gets. 
along yeah. with you know one or two others. Yeah, that Netflix becomes a one that you have to subscribe to, even if you don't subscribe to, you know, Disney Plus, Hulu, D, uh, excuse me, Disney Plus, Hulu, uh, DC Universe, the Universal <laughs> one that's coming, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, um, so many. Um, you know, Viacom just uh, announced the Pluto TV uh, acquisition earlier today. Sounds like. From what I'm gathering from every award season matters with the Hollywood establishment, getting people to work with these streaming services. Social media uh, matters to retain the audience, attract the audience of payers, and then, hey, actors, big name actors still matter in streaming services, perhaps more than they do at the box office, which to me kind of explains why so many of them love this over-the-top era as well. Thank you, Julia Borston, Scott Mendelson. Um, this has been Fort Knox. Rich ideas, powerful people talking about the streaming area, content, what really makes things valuable? How much is a Roma worth, which is how much is a U worth? Something we're gonna continue to talk about as these battles between Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Hulu, Disney, NBC Universal on down the line continue. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next time. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.